Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Oh my goodness, Trish, I've uh, got one of our uh, emails. We don't often get emails. We usually get our messages on Facebook or Instagram, but we do welcome um, an email. It's just a really simple email from a lady in the Isle of Wight, loving driving across the Isle of Wight every morning, listening to our podcast. Oh, I can imagine it. I'm visualising it. Anyway, only damn well signs it off. I hope Margot's enjoying the sun. (laughs) That cat is not on the podcast. She's not a co-host. Stop including her, people. I think you're jealous, Lorraine. I think because she gets almost as much attention as you do and you don't like it, do you? I don't like cats, Trish. I don't. I'm no. just saying it no, out there. I'm not a cat fan. But listen, Margot is enjoying the sunshine. Thank you very much for asking. Is it not like she feels like she's wearing a great big fur coat lying outside in some kind of slinky mink? Boiling her little body and her little brain. She doesn't mind. <laughs> Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Okay, my friends, uh, it's back to normal this week. Lovely listeners, uh, after our little jaunt to Brighton to record an episode of the podcast uh, when we were on our girls getaway, Trish. Um, I loved it because you took me all around your old haunts from the 80s when you were a student at Brighton Poly. Also, where you and Neil met on your first date. I know, it's a nice story, but there's a story I forgot. I didn't tell you this. When I met Neil, I did have a boyfriend back in London at the time, and we've been together How for a year. Outrageous. I know, I know, I did the dirty on him. I let him down gently. Oh, no wonder you didn't tell me, because Judgy Marion wouldn't have liked that. I know, I, I think I slightly broke his heart, but it's a big deal. Going out for a year when you're 19, that's a long time, isn't it? Mm. Never saw him again until about three weeks ago. <laughs> I bumped into him. You know, I went to see James at the Royal Albert Hall. I bumped into him. And you know why? Because there was an interval. And that's <laughs> a concert with an interval. What do you mean you bumped into him? Has he been stalking you for 412 years? No, I don't think he has been stalking me for nearly 40 years. But um, I was uh, waiting for Neil in the, in the foyer in the interval. He was in the loo. Hmm. And he came up to me Aww. and he said, oh, it's Trish Halpin. And it was so lovely because it just reminded me he was a really lovely man and he's still a really lovely man. And Aww. I just thought, how lucky was I for my first love to be this really kind, lovely man? And um, yes, I know I broke his heart and that's terrible. But we know these days, don't we, with the young folk, it's quite tricky dating first loves because they're all yeah. ghosting each other on social media and that kind of thing, aren't they? Terrific, frankly. I can't imagine being um, a young person today trying to no. navigate this dating world. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? But listen, enough of my romantic liaisons because um, we recently got a step closer, didn't we, to tracking down your first snog, Vernon. This is a mystery-solving podcast all on its own, <laughs> quite frankly, isn't it? I it's know. like murders in the building, this. Exactly. <laughs> um, and we talked about first snogs, didn't we? 
couple of years ago on the show. And lovely Janet posted on the group that she thought your Vernon might be her husband's cousin. I mean, we do our best not to try and identify people here, but there were a few factors. This slightly unusual name, (laughs) the fact that we all know you grew up in Cornwall. But anyway, we met Janet at Postcards from Midlife Live last month, didn't we? And we picked up the Vernon conversation. Yes. (laughs) It was a little bit confusing because it was... (laughs) Early Saturday morning out of context and I was kind of, and lovely Janet came up to us, didn't she, and said, "Uh, I think my cousin, my husband's cousin Vernon knows you. And I don't really know what you're talking about. I think she's from Devon. And my first school was in Plymouth. So I think it's, that's the kind of link as well. Anyway, it was a nice way into a chat with lovely Janet and her friend. Janet was, um, was lovely. We loved meeting Janet. Yeah, we did like meeting her. And then we noticed that she posted on the Facebook group after visiting uh, London and coming to the show, I'm a bit out of my comfort zone as I'm more of a lurker on this group. But after having such a good time at Postcards from Midlife Live, I'm keen to keep the positivity going and wondered if there are people from the North Wales area who fancy meeting up sometime. Happy to coordinate if people are up for it. Nothing formal, maybe just a brew and a cake somewhere. Anyway, that's my fearless act for today and I look forward to hearing from people. That's really lovely, isn't it? I quite Mm. like that, Janet, putting herself out there. And you did hear from the people. You got a number of replies on the group. So uh, we are eagerly awaiting the uh, coffee, cake, brew update uh, when you get together. Uh, It's the next chapter of the uh, North Wales postcards from Midlife Fan Group. I don't even know where North Wales is. What bit of Wales are we talking about, Trish? <laughs> the north of Wales. <laughs> what is in North Wales? Is it Cardiff? Is it Mumbles? No, of course not. It's all like Snowdonia and Hollyhead. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. Oh, beautiful. Yes, Cardiff South. <laughs> yes. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, though, I am a bit worried because there's a, an army of Marians assembling on the group, Trish, aren't there? Thanks to your... There is. Oh my goodness, they're out there. They walk among um, us. Yes. The Marion moment in the cinema when you talked about the food, the nibbling, it seemed yes. to set you on edge and you had a confrontational conversation, which is definitely out of your comfort zone. I did. I did. I told the man next to me who I was very cross with because he spent 40 minutes crunching, munching, scrunching his popcorn. Having a nice quiet time to himself. Yes. <laughs> Unaware of what he was sat next to. These are the important things we need to bring you on this show. So um, so when I talked about that, it prompted Lynn um, to post on the Facebook group. She said, listening to the latest podcast, noisy food in the cinema, absolutely in my room 101. And there was a bit of a pile on yeah. after that. <laughs> I particularly liked Jen's reply. She said, absolutely agree. Though it's a hard decision working out if it's the persistent sweet unwrapping. I mean, who the hell decided that individually wrapped sweets were a good choice for the cinema? Or the cooked nachos, which Odeon seems to deliver to your seat mid-film. It's not the crunching, it's the slurping of the nachos. Um, But while I've been getting the Marians up in arms, you've had some really lovely messages about your brilliant new book, Lorraine, haven't you? What's wrong with me? 101 things midlife women need to know. I know you're very modest, you're very shy and unforthcoming, but I'm going to make you read out one message in particular. I've I've put it here in the script. I don't like to blow my own trumpet, as you know, (laughs) Trish, but um, the book seems to be really resonating with people because it's not about menopause and perimenopause, it's about identity. And that seems to be the bit that people are liking. Um, I got this really lovely message. I shall read verbatim as you have popped it in the script. Uh Thank you for the podcast, which I've listened to since the start. I've just finished your book and I think it may well be absolutely pivotal for me. I'm a 48-year-old mum of two. I've been on HRT for the last year. Because my physical symptoms have diminished and I'm feeling better overall, I just thought I had it sorted and I could breeze through this time. But it wasn't that simple. I'm still feeling incredibly overwhelmed and stressed all the time. I have a senior job in a big company and I'm responsible for huge sales targets and a big team. It's a high pressure and long hours role. And up until now, I have genuinely thrived on it. My work has been a huge part of my identity. I work with mostly men and have never said the word menopause out loud at work. Your tale of your career change really resonated with me and gave me the confidence to make a change. You made me sit back and realise that my job is just too much and I don't need it. I don't need to put myself under that kind of pressure every day. I need time to myself and to focus on my kids for a while. I'm calling it a sabbatical. 
Apart from mat leave, I've worked full-time since graduating in 1996. This is going to be a massive change, but I feel so positive about it. I'm ready to begin my second career. I've engaged a career coach, and I'm going to work with her on how to use my skills and interests to build the next stage of my working life on my terms. I'm nervous and excited. You really made the difference in spurring me towards this change. Isn't that amazing, isn't it? Because at some point, you realise, don't you, you're just on the same hamster wheel that you've been yeah. on and you start to question, is that really who I who I am anymore? Could mm-hmm. I change it? Or not everyone can obviously change their job or their career. Um, their circumstances don't allow. But you can think about changing your attitude and tweaking little things and not staying late and not getting in early and not worrying about it at weekends, that kind of thing, can't you? Yes. I think it really happens in midlife and it's what yeah. happened with us, isn't it? It was, it was kind of pivotal for us. Well, bravo to you, Lorraine, and bravo to the midlife women who are finally learning how to say what it is that they really want for themselves out of life. It's in fact the theme of today's episode, isn't it? Because our special guest is the celebrated psychotherapist Maxine May Fung Chong, whose new book is called What Women Want, Conversations on Desire, Power, Love and Growth. And it's a really fascinating book because it explores desire of all sorts. Obviously, not when we say desire, we usually think of sexual desire, don't we? But it's desire of all sorts. You do, Trish. (laughs) Filthy. Yes, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. But it tells the story of desire through seven of her female clients. So we're going to be finding out lots more about that, as well as getting Maxine's advice on how we can act on our own desires too. I've got a bit of a desire at the moment in this lovely sunshine. Yes. I want to go on a nice holiday. Um, I'm sort of blaming it on all this chat of travel because we did a travel survey with Sawdose Travel and we uh, surveyed our listeners' travel habits and bucket lists. Um, And we've been doing a bit of research because we want to bring you practical ideas for your new midlife adventures. Um, We've got lots more destination ideas for you this week, which will be coming up later in the show in our new Postcards from Saw Days section, which is after the interview. And we have even put together a midlife hub on the Saw Days website, which has all the places we talked about on last week's show and all the tips from today's too. Today's guest is fresh from the therapist's couch and she's going to attempt to answer one of midlife's trickiest questions. What is it that women want? And what do we need to know about ourselves before we attempt to answer that powerful question? Trish and I are about to dive deep into your psyche with psychoanalytic psychotherapist and clinical supervisor Maxine May Fung Chung, whose new book, What Women Want, Conversations on Desire, Power, Love and Growth, has been called an epiphany of female desire. Through the stories of seven of Maxine's female patients, the book grapples with the questions of identity, belonging, shame, sexuality and past trauma, subjects we often have to grapple with ourselves during this transitional period of midlife. Maxine, who has just turned 50, is a celebrated therapist who's won awards for her work supporting the mental health of people from ethnic minorities. She's a single mum of one son, now age 19, and is British-born Chinese. Maxine began her career on the art desk of GQ and Sunday Times Style magazine, but switched to therapy more than 20 years ago. Today, we're going to be asking Maxine about her work with women and how our desires change as we age to find out exactly what we can do to celebrate them proactively. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Maxine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. In your lovely, gorgeously designed room there. Um, I think we should start by asking you about your book, how it came about, and also, I guess, why you chose those women, those seven women, to sort of mirror the female psyche in general. I guess it's a book that's been writing itself in a way, for the last 15 years, well, 15, nearly 20 years, which is the time that I've been practicing as a psychotherapist. And I think what was really powerful for me in this work was that women were coming to me talking about their desires. They were very clear about what they wanted, but what the struggle was, was how they were getting to that desire. So that's the premise for the book, really. And also, it's a kind of conversation with Freud as well, who claims that after 30 years of inquiry into the feminine soul, was no closer to understanding what women wanted. 
But the way that I chose the seven women that we're reading about, there was actually a lot more. There was another 10 that came forward. So there were 17 in total. And I'd put a notice up in my waiting room to say that I was going to be writing this book on desire. And if anybody wanted to collaborate with me, that they could come and have a conversation with me. So I didn't want to ask anybody directly because I think that that could have felt quite pressurizing. I also questioned the ethics of that. Um, but I was really moved by how many women wanted to be in this book. Briefly explain uh, a few of the cases because you, you have anonymized them a little bit, but you have a woman who's engaged to a man, but who is seeking uh, sex with women um, in the lead up to that. And a lot of that is trapped in her past. Just, just, just describe a couple of the women from the book and their stories. Sure. So we've got Terry, our runaway bride, who opens up what women want who is actually queer, but hasn't been able to come out and follow her desires because of oppressions and really, really violent relationship with her mother. Um, we also have Agatha, who finds love at 68. Um, I love that. And her son, her son disapproves so strongly, doesn't he? Really strongly. And then there is um, Beverly, who loses her son to suicide. And her desire is about reclaiming or the reclamation of her life. We also have Kitty, a.k.a. Catherine, um, who is a model who fears that any feelings that she has will destroy her. Universal desire, that's what we've tried to kind of think about in the book, that maybe we as women can recognize ourselves or something of ourselves in each of these women, or at least mm -hmm. a few of them. And do you think age played any kind of part or life stage? Because what we sort of find with being midlife women and speaking to so many midlife women is it does feel like a kind of point of reckoning, a kind of a time of life when you're, you're sort of looking back, taking stock, but also thinking about how do I want the future to look? So did midlife, that period of time, play any specific role in these women's wants and desires? I think this reckoning is really important because I think from the cradle to the grave, we desire, we want, we need whether that's love, whether that's relationships, whether that's work satisfaction. And I think the reckoning, even though we may be in midlife, some of us still feel that even though our bodies are changing, our outlooks are changing, sometimes we still feel that we're in our 20s or 30s. Of course, we have responsibilities. We may have families or we may have extra job pressures. But the reckoning in what I've experienced with clients is that it becomes stronger. The desire becomes stronger because maybe we're facing time. We're facing, you know, we may, we're at midlife and we have so many years behind us. So it was certainly something that I was very much focused on in the book and, and didn't want to ignore women in midlife, in fact, because there's a lot of fetishization of youth, I believe, in our culture. So that felt really important for what women want. How do women navigate that then? So you get to midlife, you have all these desires, you know you've got less left than perhaps you've had <laughs> to fulfill them. How, how, what advice have you got for women in that reckoning place now? So much advice when it depends on the individual woman that's coming to me. I don't think there's a generic answer to no. that. I think, you know, certainly if we just think about the empty nest, let's take that as an example for women that are maybe seeing you know, their children leave home and they're, they're wondering, gosh, what do I do, you know, at this time? Who am I? Who am I? You know, especially if a lot of the time has been spent looking after multiple children. And I, I'm a great believer in community. You know, I believe that community puts the fire out of shame. So when these desires start to resurface in, in our midlife, you know, some women might come and have a lot of shame around that or think they're not deserving of it or are thinking or are told they ought to be acting a particular way midlife. So I think that it's really important to have community. It's really important to be talking about these desires and, and, and about, you know, what those wants and needs are at this midlife stage. With other people. Definitely. And you mentioned shame. And I think this comes up a lot. And Trisha and I hear it a lot uh, amongst the women of our generation. So we're Gen X women. Um, and I guess a lot of our sexual awakenings were sort of slightly shrouded in shame. The culture of the TV and the, <laughs> the way headlines were written, all of that <laughs> felt to me that, you know, even being a sexually active woman was slightly shameful, even if you, particularly if you weren't heterosexually sexually active, there was so much shame 
around that beginning of our desires, that kind of intimate desires. How do we navigate that now? Because I think it sits in women, that shame, doesn't it? Sort of, as you say, shame and guilt. What's our thought process as women in unpicking that? I think shame is one of the most difficult feelings to work with because it's so visceral and it's so exposing. So when we feel that shame, we often feel, gosh, people are looking at us, judging us, thinking certain things about us. And again, this is why I come back to community, because I think the more that we're talking and sharing about the menopause or about job changes or longings for a new partner, a new, you know, a new job, we put the fire out on that shame. I mean, the opposite of shame is beloved. And if we're feeling beloved and we're feeling seen and we're feeling recognized, that shame really comes down in volume. We did um, a survey last year, actually, of our Facebook community and our listeners, which was all about their attitudes to sex and sexuality and how, how they felt about that at this life stage and having going through and having gone through um, menopause. Well, the overriding message was it's really, really important to feel a sexuality and to feel sexual desire. It can be difficult as we get older because we do, well, we lose the urge from testosterone, all sorts of things that can happen. But you mentioned one of your cases was a lady who found love again in her 60s, and I'm sure there was an element of sexuality to that. So how do we come to terms with our sexuality and those wants and desires? I mean, I wonder if we are coming to terms with it. I think maybe in our 60s, but there is again the reckoning you mentioned earlier. And again, I think there's something about the culture that tries to tell us that we oughtn't to be doing that. You know, we, we often don't see women, you know, in the culture represented in, in a sexual way, in an intimate way, because our culture says that we want to see young bodies. And I think it goes grassroots, really in the way that we're conveyed in, in culture, whether that's on TV, in literature. And I think that needs to change. I mean, it's slowly changing, but very, very slowly. Do um, your clients bring this to you, this kind of sexuality? And Because and, a lot of women we speak to say, I just want to say what I want now when it comes to sex. Do you see a lot of women who talk about that? Definitely. You know, if we think about Agatha, who's in the book, who's 68, and she's been married twice before. She has, you know, a child. And then she meets and falls in love with Bill, who's in his early 70s. And she talked very openly of this reawakening in terms of her sexuality. They, you know, it's called Love in the Afternoon because they have their lovemaking in the afternoon. And it's a tender tale of sexual intimacy. Again, women are talking about this probably or thinking about this in solitude. The aim of this book is that we come out the closet with our desire, you know, that we, we start to talk more. But I'm still finding that women are struggling to talk about desire. Obviously, when they come to my consulting room, it's a safe place. You know, there's four walls, there's a containment. But generally speaking, I think for particularly women in midlife, we, we're still struggling with it. It's giving ourselves permission, isn't it, to say it out loud in a way? Yeah. And my experience of that is about judgment. Yeah. You know, that, that desire or that sexuality needs to, you know, not be as visible. Well, we need to talk about it more, don't we? Another yeah. emotion that comes up a lot, <laughs> which it seemed to run through the thread of all of the seven women, actually, and it's a really specific midlife emotion, is uh, anger or mm -hmm. rage. I think all of us feel it. And, you know, often we feel it because of the estrogen dropping and fluctuating. But there is still, even when we're on our HRT, quite a lot of fury with midlife women. Why, do you think? I think anger gets a tough rap, actually. I think we do well to be angry and to be able to voice it and name it. And this is where, you know, men have a far easier ride with rage and anger. They seem to be able to get away with it and it's just leadership or, you know, for us, we're considered unhinged or hysterical. You know, hysterical, exactly right. So we need to change our gaze around, you know, women's anger. If we think about anger, it's a defense against powerlessness. So when we're angry, there's a potency to it. There's agency with it. You know, you can kind of push forward with anger. But really what is beneath that anger are far more complicated feelings potentially, like powerlessness, like depressions, like loneliness. And I think the anger is what makes us feel slightly more motivated to keep moving. So I always try and look at what is below anger. And fear, isn't it? And fear, yeah. 
You use the phrase as well, Maxine, no feeling is final, which uh, I think is so interesting. Do you want to explain what you mean by that and, and why it's useful for women in midlife? The phrase for me, no feeling is final in terms of my own process and, and with patience is that patients usually arrive feeling a multitude of feelings, but there may be an issue that they've bought where they say, I'm really angry about this and I can't seem to move through it. And I think the fixation on one feeling, or even if there's a, you know, a process within the therapy that they can't get beyond, it's almost they become obsessed or fixated on this feeling. And I think that unless we kind of work through that, I have a phrase that I work with in my therapy practice, which is to the ghosts in the nursery, which is kind of going back and looking at maybe why they're feeling this certain way. And once we can kind of work through the process, we'll find that there's a multitude of feelings. We may start with rage, but then when that's given space and time and healing, we might find that there's powerlessness or fear or loneliness, helplessness. And so this is where I feel it's helpful because if we can move through spaces with different feelings, you know, we become fuller humans. We, we, we create a language for ourselves whereby we don't just fixate on one feeling. And it's good to feel all the feelings, isn't it, as well? Because that's, I think, there's a sense perhaps in midlife where we think we shouldn't feel angry or we shouldn't feel fearful, we shouldn't feel lonely. So the reckoning takes you through those feelings, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. And I think just somebody witnessing all those feelings with you and not making you feel that they're not vital, they're not important, that someone can just really hear you. And that's the other thing we need to discuss, isn't it? The, the voice you've already touched on women not being culturally representative. That, that That is getting a little bit better, I feel, but certainly not women from all backgrounds. Women talk to us about not having a voice, which is also linked to not having confidence in midlife. They lose a huge amount of confidence uh, through the perimenopausal symptoms and also just generally in, in midlife because of so much change. How do we get that confidence back? Where do we sit and think about being more confident around ourselves as women if, if we came to you? Well, I would be looking at, I think we all have voices. It's just we need to learn and have confidence to use them. You know, So I think there's something about looking at what that stunt is, you know, as it happened recently, has something happened during the menopause where anxiety is taken over, for example, and we feel that our voice is no longer important. So if somebody was coming to me with that, I would be thinking and asking questions around, when did this begin? Has it always been there? You know, and it would be dependent on what each woman or person was bringing to me. But in particularly in midlife, it might be, I'm invisible. Who cares what I think? And I would be there to tell them that I cared and there would be many people that cared and, and it would be working on self-esteem and it would be working on relationships and encouraging conversations with other people. I feel very passionately that women have voice and, and strong ones at that. And as well as finding your voice and your confidence, I think the idea of identity, the, the who am I question sort of rears its head as well at this, this life stage. And I did this exercise when I was training to be a coach where you have to stand there and say to somebody, who am I? And it's so difficult to not say, oh, I'm a mother, I'm an editor, I'm a this, I'm a that. And, and this idea of trying to explore who we are, and obviously that's something that therapy can really help with. If maybe you can't afford therapy or it's not accessible to you, where could you go for some resource or help to maybe explore your identity? Yeah. Yeah, identity is really important, isn't it? And I think, you know, we have social media to thank or not thank for this because there's so much pressure on us to be forming, creating, doing. And sometimes the smaller things, the nuances of life, you know, that we don't have to live up to the expectation of what is expected of us, you know, a tyranny of shoulds and musts. So we would want to be thinking what really makes you happy if it's not being a uh, career woman that's that's ticking lots of boxes. Maybe a woman is far happier um, doing something quieter than, you know, to really clean that and, and get comfortable with that rather than that tyrannous, well, I ought to be doing this because that then we go down to a cul-de-sac where nobody's happy. So I think that that's really important in really listening to what you love, what you want, what makes you happy. In terms of resources, yeah, I mean, Therapy can be expensive. And even for the therapists like myself that working with pro bono and various other ways, it's still 
a big commitment of time because it's not just paying for the therapy. It's the time that's needed to travel to your therapist, have an hour there, and then the travel back. This is, you know, this is also costly to one's life. So I'm a great believer in books, in literature, community I've talked about. I could recommend a lot of books that we maybe ought to be looking at and reading in middle life. And also, if you do have an interest, whether that's physical activity, whether it's creating or making something, something within the community, get involved with that as much as you can. Because I think that during midlife, we can become a little isolated. You mentioned books, Maxine. Obviously, there's your book, which is going to be helpful for women. But is there another, a book that you might recommend? I love Davina McCall's Menopausing. Yeah. Really useful book. I'm also interested in fiction because I think if we think about midlife heroines, I've just got back from Hay Festival and mm-hmm. I'm chair an event with Joanne Harris and Fran Littlewood. And they've both written books about midlife heroines, and they're both fantastic books. Midlife women are very rarely central protagonists. They're either mothers or carers. And these two women are anything but. And I think, again, it's about shifting the gaze in the culture that we need to be putting midlife front and centre. We're not there just as kind of in the wings. We are here to have a life. And, you know, we are, I think, a lot more comfortable generally without, you know, Obviously, not for everybody, but as you were saying earlier, you know, we're, well, I'm just going to say what I mean. What have I got to lose at this point? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, you've just turned 50, haven't you? Um, we ask all our guests about their midlife journey. How was your perimenopause, menopause? What, what was your mental and physical journey through those years? Well, I hit it head on, Lorraine. You know, I wasn't going to be someone that kind of. You know, I went to talk to people, I got help, I got support, I talked to my friends, a lot of my friends um, are older than me actually, so I went to them for advice, they guided me, I read menopausing, you know, I took everything that I needed, I, I upped my exercise, I made sure I was checking in with girlfriends a lot more frequently because I could get quite emotional and quite teary, and that's not really helpful when you're a therapist as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's ongoing. Yeah, I really tried to face it head on as much as possible. Did you learn to set better boundaries? That's another thing we hear a lot in then, midlife, that being able to be able to say no and yeah. no being enough of an explanation. Was that something you encountered? Yeah, and I think it cuts through any codependencies we might have, you know, because when we say no, you know, especially as mothers, we can fear we're letting someone down or our children down. But it felt essential to be able to say no, because there's nothing worse, is there, than rocking up somewhere, not wanting to be somewhere, feeling exhausted, feeling emotional and tired. Um, so the boundaries were, yeah, were definitely ramped up. And resting, I think rest becomes a radical act. We had Catherine May on who wrote Wintering last week, and that, that is her premise, isn't it, Trish, that rest is a bit of a radical it's almost a new thing for this generation of women who've been used to enduring quite a lot of stuff, isn't it? As a woman of colour, we, we've been familiar with this phrase a lot more because we've obviously been in service for others a lot more. So it's something that we've been, you know, there's been a movement. There's an amazing book. What's it called? It's called Sisterhood Heals by Dr. Joy, um, which is an amazing book. And it's about community, but it's also about rest as a radical act and that we need to be doing this for healthy lives. Can I ask you about your career, Maxine? Because again, midlife, we all sort of start thinking about having second act careers, but you did it that bit earlier, didn't you? Because you were a graphic designer, art director, and I think were you about 30 when you decided to retrain? What advice would you have for somebody wanting to go in a totally different direction? And quite often women do want to go into second careers that are more caring, nurturing, or helping other people, community-based things. I mean, having done it yourself, what are the kind of pitfalls and what do you love about it? The pitfalls, I think, are the fear. You know, if our identity has been very much tied up in one thing, to then uproot that and feel very frightening. And so I would say one of the really important things that I found was really having people around me that really understood, that were really going to champion, not, not in a kind of unrealistic way, but were asking me practical questions. You know, they were saying, so how is this going to happen? How is that transition going to work? You know, for example, I was raising my son alone when I decided to 
stop art directing and become a therapist. I'd been a Samaritan for 10 years, so that was kind of mulling in the background. Um, and then I think having a son, you know, made me think. I'd also been in my own analysis from the age of 23, so I was really interested in that inquiry. It's about facing the fear. You know, again, we have these phrases, don't we? Feel the fear and do it anyway. Well, it's all very well and good, but it can feel terrifying and we have bills to pay and mortgages and so forth. But I think, you know, if you are interested in doing something, do something gradual. Don't leap in completely. Make the transition as smooth as possible because it might be that once you try and do something, it's not for you. Smaller steps and then it feels manageable as well because at midlife, we're tired and you know, we don't have the energy that we did when we were in our 20s and 30s. So I would say do it gradual, but have a community around you that are going to support you. And you mentioned your heritage there. So your dad's Chinese, isn't he? And your mum's white British, isn't she? Tell us where you grew up um, and how you, I guess, navigated your teenage years, because you did encounter quite a bit of racism, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Still do, actually, Lorraine. That's disappointing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I grew up in a really small town in Lincolnshire, and my mum and dad met in the 60s. My dad came over from Hong Kong, uh, an immigrant, in the 60s, and they met and fell in love, and they were a very kind of hip couple. And they were both really hard workers. You know, my dad, um, who's no longer with us, um, was challenging. He was patriarchal and very much set in his ways, and my mum was white working class, so you know, I'd really struggled. And, and so I grew up with two very strong messages. You know, from my mother, it was, I want does not get. And then from my father, it was that I was too sensitive to live. I didn't realize at the time, but both were fuel for this book because I'm terribly sensitive. And, you know, I want does not get is not truthful, clearly. But in a way, what they both did was they put messages before me to push against. And so it was difficult. You know, we, we grew up in a predominantly white working class community. We were the only brown family on the estate where I grew up. And I left home at 16 to try and, you know, I was first in my family, university educated. And I was very interested in the arts. And, it, you know, and I moved and I went to, you know, art college and then on to London. And, but now I can kind of go back, you know, come back to Lincolnshire and it can feel home again because. It's kind of on my terms. You've done a lot of work with um, uh, diverse communities, haven't you, and uh, supporting people's mental health. Is it it, how different is it for women who've gone through a kind of background like yours when they hit this reckoning in midlife? Because all our voices are quite quiet, but the the voices from other communities are almost unheard, aren't they? It's hard. It's hard because you know they probably um, you know the women that I work with anyway have, have kind of just been in service the whole time. And so they've been doing for others. So any agency for them to have what they want has been really, really challenging. They, they've often not known what they want um, until they come to therapy and start to unpack and then there's no stopping them. And with the, the racism, Maxine, I mean, it's astounding to hear that you're, you're still experiencing it as a British woman uh, in 2023. But how do you respond to it? How do you deal with it? What what kind of things happen? And how do you deal with it? It was difficult. I mean, particularly post COVID, you know, when Chinese people were blamed. So I really felt it then, you know, people wouldn't sit next to me on a bus with the face mask on. I was actually pushed down an escalator two years ago. Oh. And you don't expect to see this. How do I respond? I don't respond with violence. I keep myself safe, which is the most important thing. And I channel it in the work that I do. I mean, I guess we can be allies in when we witness those situations as well. That's helpful, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Now, finally, before we let you go, our show today is travel special. We are talking about holidays and summer holidays. What? Uh, where are you off to? What are your plans? I'm actually heading off to the Amalfi Coast in July. (gasps) Ah, gorgeous. Yes, I can't wait, actually. I'm really ready for it. Me and uh, my son and some friends are going. So we're going to be based in Sorrento. So he'll still holiday with you then at 19? Yeah. We're not friends. He's my son. I'm his mum. We have a lot of fun together, actually. We have a lot in common, a lot of common interests. And has he left home? Have you had been through the dreaded empty nest? Yeah, the slab of my heart gave way last year. 
it's difficult for single mums, isn't it, as well? Because it's, you know, single mums with one and only child, that's quite a chunk of your life that changes dramatically, isn't it? Definitely. And it's, it's been an intense relationship, you know, because I would definitely say my mothering has teeth. And um, oh, I like that phrase. <laughs> Explain what you mean by that. Um, I'm very protective of him. I think that comes from my own ghosts in the nursery of being protective of him. And he's followed the arts. So that's really interesting. But yeah, he left home a year ago. And so I've tried to, you know, step back and let him have that autonomy. But it's, it's been challenging, really challenging. How, how long was it before you could go into his bedroom without hurling yourself to the floor? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do it now. It's just so sad. Spilled. <laughs> me. I still do it. Yeah, he's coming home this weekend and I'm already excited about him coming home. Oh, so. Well, thank you so much for all your helpful. I mean, I just think it's so useful to have so many voices. Your book really is really useful. and It does tell such wonderful stories um, and tells them in a very personal way as well. It's very descriptive, but it's really useful to have women talking out loud about all this, isn't it, in this day and age? Thank you, Lorraine. That means the world to me. Thank you. I'm really pleased that you liked it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That was such a fascinating, lovely, lovely chat with Maxine. And um, loving the sound of her summer holiday. Very glamorous, the Amalfi Coast. We like a little trip to Italy, don't we, Trish? And that leads us nicely to How to Win at Midlife, which for this week we are once again renaming Postcards from Sordays. We're allowed to do these things. We're allowed to rename sections of things, change things up because... um. It's our show, isn't it? And we're the bosses. Yeah, we can do what we want, Trish. Anyway, if you listened to last week's episode, you'll know that we have teamed up with travel experts Saw Days to help you make the most of your midlife adventures. Uh, we've been working with their super experienced travel guys to get them to spill beans on how you can plan the best travel escapes. And that could be a family holiday, a big celebration, a romantic escape or girls getaways. And it all started with a survey. So thanks to the hundreds and hundreds of you who shared your travel experiences. And there was a prize draw. We do love a prize. For everyone who entered, there was a chance to win a £500 Sawdays voucher. And I can announce that the lucky winner is... Ba, 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 Dara Bond. Mm, I wonder what she will be spending that on. Hot weekend away with her young lover, I feel. I hope no, so. I, I don't hope know. so. No, Let's dream. Not. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she'll tell us. Maybe oh, she yeah. will tell us. Perhaps, though, it might be one of our suggestions from today's recommendations. And today we're going to focus on foodie, culture and walking escapes. Uh, those were the activities you all said you enjoy the most on holidays. That is kind of what we like to do in midlife because the lying on the beach situation is so no, dull, isn't it? I've never really been is. a lie on the beach yeah, person. Yeah, might do like... Half a day on the first day, and then after that, I'm off. Need to be doing things. I need too much attention to lie on the beach on my own. It doesn't feel I don't have an audience for that. <laughs> oh so, what are you kicking off with? Come on. 
I'm going to kick off with the walking recommendations because obviously walking is my thing. Although I have to say my my hips get a bit sticky at the eight mile mark. So I need to work on that. You walk like you've been fired out of a gun. It's so fast. It's really unenjoyable, Trish. <laughs> I mean, you might as well run for God's sake. Are you trailing behind me? Like a little duckling. Yes. <laughs> uh, you and your sticky hips. Do you remember Helen from the Facebook group who we talked uh, about a couple of weeks ago yes. um, who was saying uh, yes to new things and she tried yoga on the beach? Another thing you may have said no to because of the sand situation. Anyway, she loved that. She's posted again. She's been on a 21-mile hike. She hasn't got sticky hips, has she? No, she hasn't. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to take that as a challenge now and I have to say... These three recommendations from the Sordes experts are definitely going to get me limbering up my hips. Um, first up, we are heading to France. Bonjour. Bonjour, mes amis. Specifically, the Gorge of Aveyron. Do you think I said that correctly? Probably not. I think we're going to upset half of Europe over the next 10 minutes. So um, brace yourselves with our pronunciation. Yes. Well, just reminding everyone they can find all of this in information on Sorde's website on the yeah. Midlife Travel Hub. But um, the Gorge of Aveyron is near Najac, which is north of Toulouse and southeast of Bordeaux. And um, it's this stunning gorge with beautiful views and really well-established hiking routes, uh, whether you want to go on a gentle stroll or a more hardy hike, maybe a 21-miler. I don't know, across seven days. And of course, you can just jump in the river, cooling dips yeah. in the river all along the way, which I think sounds really nice. And um, there's a really beautiful uh, place called the Maison d'Artis, which is the rustic retreat. It's a self-catering stone cottage, and it's set up really high um, over the gorge with dramatic views. So a lot of sunsets, sunrises, swimming, walking. Sounds pretty gorgeous. I'm going to uh, head to Mallorca for my uh, my walking. Yeah. Uh, and walking is a very beautiful way to see an island like Mallorca, mm. I think, um, because it's very lush, isn't it? It's very green. Slightly tough because it's quite hilly, but um, the scenery is incredible. Yes. You can go uh, through the Sierra de Tramontana, which our producer Ben says is something about wind um, or it being windy. <laughs> windy. Windy. <laughs> And there's loads of lovely villages, Dea, Sola, or oh, Dea's lovely Trish. Lot of nice shopping in there. Mm, it's very nice. Uh, Valdemossa. And after a busy day's walking, you know where you can go? I like to do things like this, don't mm. I, Trish? You can go to the Night Manager restaurant. The TV show. Yes, with Tom Hiddleston. Yes. Yeah, that gorgeous one where they drew up in the boat. Mm. Lovely. It's called, um, I'm going to say it wrong. Sapatra March. March? Marche? I don't mm -hmm. know how you say it. Anyway, look it up. It's uh, beautiful. So that's in Mallorca. What have you got now? Your third walking recommendation. So I'm going to be heading to Italy for our third little walking recommendation and booking a stay at the Casala San Pietro. Uh, which is positioned right on the... F oh, God, I'm going to say this wrong, right? Mangle it. Mangle away and we'll get some lovely Italian listener tell us how to say it all properly. Frankigena. <laughs> That's the pilgrim trail, isn't it? The pilgrim trail. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm having just... I'm having a we can't pronounce anything and we're so scared of upsetting everyone. <laughs> we can't stop laughing either. Come on, Trish, your glasses are steamed up. <laughs> Moving on. Right. <laughs> sorry. Okay. It's it's all medieval villages like Anang... Anang... <laughs> sorry. Oh. Right, hang on. <laughs> You can walk through lots of medieval villages like Anagni, which is the town of the popes. Oh, you like a bit of that, don't you? Think you're Catholic. And it's only 45 minutes outside of Rome, actually. So you could visit the Pope at the Vatican and then go to the town of the popes, couldn't you? That would be rather nice. A little two-stop trip. Now, whenever we talk about Italy, I get hungry. Oh, yes. Oh, just the best food in Italy. We mm. had years of lovely food in Milan, didn't we? Um, mm. When we were at the fashion shows. I haven't really moved in the last hour, so I'm particularly not deserving of anything at the moment. Um, but I do like a foodie-focused adventure. Yes. And there is one that the Sordes experts told us about, which is just a hop over the channel. We can pop down to Brittany. We could have a little foodie weekend, Trish. Mm, um, it's yes. that rugged stretch of coast and it's got 
just loads of locally caught seafood restaurants, cafes, bars, and also it's all prices, isn't it? And all styles yes. um, along yeah. there. So it's uh, it's a brilliant little trip, um, and you could. Uh, buy some stuff in the market not me because obviously I can't cook to save my life and you could take it back to a self-catering cottage and cook there yes that'd be lovely it's got a heritage of galettes or crepes oh I love a crepe Mm. kids would love that teenagers like that cider apple juice can be found everywhere but it's also got Michelin starred restaurants so uh, it's quite a nice foodie trip Brittany yes if you want to go a bit fancy you've got it there but um, there's another recommendation for France uh, which is in the French Basque a village called Esplet. And uh, you'll like this, Lorraine, yeah. because you introduced me to chili martinis yeah. last week, didn't you? And this village, Esplet, charming village, famous for their red chili peppers. And at the end of October, the village celebrates La Fête du Piment, the pepper festival. But you could go any time of the year, really, and try some of the kind of Basque cuisine, charcuterie, spicy chocolate, all made with these famous red peppers. Mm. Sounds delicious. I'm just going to stick with my Italian food, though, because on on my list to visit uh, in the next year or so is Sicily. Oh, yes. After I watched uh, Alan Carr and Amanda Holden chewing up that flat. It's just so brilliant. And the White Lotus. And the White Lotus. Sicily looked amazing. So I'm going to pop down to uh, travel from San Veto to Capo in Sicily, um, where chefs from around the world come for, guess what they come for? The annual Couscous Festival, oh, hosted in September. Such a thing. Couscous in September. I know. Couscous. Oh, I love couscous. Um, you can mm. stroll through the couscous houses and the Berber tents around the streets and beachfront. Uh, and if you buy a ticket, you get a Sicilian dessert. So you might get some of that lovely cannelloni and you get all that lovely Italian wine too. Now... Delish. Food over. Let's move on. Yeah. Hit me with some unexpected cultural getaways. So uh, these are some good little snippets all days have told us. Uh, yes. Tell me something I don't know, Trish. Well, this was a real surprise to me, and I'm definitely going to put it on my bucket list somewhere I would never have thought to go. And that's Girona in the northeast of Spain, which is really good if you fancy a cultural weekend because um, it's very near by Barcelona, but it's got lots and lots of really cool cultural things um, going on. Beautiful, beautiful um, old town. Um, Our producer, Ben, has been raving about it. He's a bit of a... He's been giving us travel advice on this section, hasn't he? It's very good. But um, nearby in Figueres is the Dali Museum, fascinated by Salvador Dali. And there's two major music festivals as well. It's a university town, so it's full of amazing, cool bars, pubs. That's what we found in Brighton, didn't we? It was yeah. so kind of vibey because you know, you've got the two universities there. And they, they suggested Café Liberia Context. Don't know Café what that Liberia means, context. but I like it. Don't know what I mean. Which has this amazing programme of poetry and music. So if you, I just think that sounds brilliant. I'm definitely going there. So Girona, yeah, yeah, my uh, yeah. daughter's going on, uh, she's kind of going across on the train and she was saying, where can I go in Spain where they have bars and cultural stuff? So that would be a good one to recommend for her as well. Uh, and talking of music, our second suggestion is in Salento, uh, which I'm particularly liking because it's the heel, the boot of Italy. Oh, the heel of the boot. Yes. I had to look that up. Anyway, uh, music lovers should consider La Nota della Taranta Festival. I think I might have done that properly. This festival takes place in 15 towns um, around Salento in Italy um, mm. across the month of August and the grand finale is held in Mel Pignano M-E-L-P-I-G-N-A-N-O which draws more than 100,000 visitors to dance in the piazza and they have traditional food and music um, of the Lecce Provence. It's a whole new area to get learning isn't it? It certainly is. And obviously, you being a fashionista, you like the heel of the boot. Um, Although we don't wear heels anymore, do we? No, because of our arthritis. We do eat quite (laughs) a lot of food and listen to music, though. Arthritic ankles and knees and things. But there we go. (laughs) We can still dance. We can still dance in the piazzas, can't we? Last but not least, our final culture recommendation. It's got music and beaches. It's Collioure in the south of France, which is known as the City of Painters for good reason. It was the meeting place of Les Fauves, which was the, that kind of group of artists like Matisse and Derain who gathered there in the early 20th century. Um, but there's a huge and extensive collection in the Museum of Modern Art. 
And I'm throwing music scene too because there's an electro beach festival. No, you can't go to that. <laughs> I think we should. No, you That's can't. On. Yeah, come on, electro beach. Let's do it. <laughs> it's a few minutes up the coast. So um, I love that you're on the coast. You've got the museums and apparently there's lovely beaches to relax on. If you did want a little bit of lying on the beach action. Well, that is quite a lot of advice. Um, <laughs> and actually, do you know what? There's... Things I've just never heard of. And obviously, we've been to Italy and France quite a lot because we are in our midlife years. And obviously, we travelled there a lot. So that's some lovely new things recommended for our listeners. They will all be on the hub. And we've got a little bit more where that came from, haven't we? Because we're going to bring you more recommendations next week. And if you missed last week's episode, do have a listen to our chat about midlife gap years and where we're both going on our summer holidays. Yes, and you can find details of all the destinations we mentioned and recommendations on the Sorday's website where they've put together a special section to help you make the most of your midlife adventures. Just go to sawdays.co.uk forward slash midlife travel. And obviously, huge apologies for the mispronunciation. <laughs> the mangling. And mangling of all of those areas. But they sound lovely, whether or not we said them right. If you'd like to get in touch with Lorraine and I, there are plenty of ways that you can do it. Why not send us an email at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or direct message us at postcardsfrommidlife on Instagram. We always enjoy hearing from you, our lovely listeners, and we'll respond to as many of your queries as we can. And you can also join us on our private Facebook group, which is a forum for women to discuss the issues that affect us as we navigate this midlife. All you have to do to join is answer three of young Trisha's questions to gain access to the group, where you'll find information and friendly support to help you make the most of your second act. Okay, we've made it towards the end of the show. One of our favourite bits, Nostalgia Noodle. I've got one that's a film that should have seen at some point in the last 40 years, but never did. Don't know how I managed to miss it, but it's been on Channel 4 recently. So I thought, right, I'm going to watch it. Carrie. Amazing. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. Yes. I've never seen it. So I sat down to watch it and oh my God, it was so brilliant and so many surprises. Most of you will probably have seen it, but... um. What kind of struck me was, uh, well, there was so much that struck me. Obviously, Sissy Spacek is amazing in the lead role as Carrie, and the story is just mad. John Travolta is in it. This must be pre-everything that he did that was big. But the weird bit is that the opening scene is very, um, it's quite pervy, isn't it? Because it's a big shower scene at the school, in the school, after the school gym. And the girls, they're all naked. Yes. You can see them all naked. (laughs) It is very sad, I think, Carrie, actually. It's a very sad film, isn't it? It is. But the weird thing is, in that scene... I think they're all wearing merkins. You know what a merkin is? I do know what a merkin is, yeah. Can you explain what a merkin is? Well, it's a sort of pubic wig, isn't it? Is that what we would call it? It's a pubic wig. Yeah, yeah. And you wouldn't wear it on your head, though. You'd wear it... No. Well, it's big enough to wear on your head. The ones on the carries. merkin. (laughs) She probably is. But it's quite a contrast to what's going on down there these days, I would say, with these teenage girls. But anyway, just I, I can talk about this. Your um, medication today, because <laughs> quite giddy. I don't quite know what's going on. You are quite giddy. Yeah, was it our trip to Brighton? It, yeah, I think it was. It's early in the morning, so it's not yeah. like anything you know has happened. But I just have to say one thing. I don't you, don't know whether you remember this. One of the most shocking things for me. So the mother, Carrie's mother, is this sort of religious maniac, and she doesn't want her going to the dance. She doesn't want her being sexual pretty or anything in any way. And Carrie is wearing this beautiful slip dress, kind of Kate Moss style slip 90s. dress to dance. And her mother says to her, she calls her her chest, your dirty pillows. I can see your dirty pillows. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard that before. No. I hope I never hear it again. It's shocking, isn't it? So between the Merkins and the dirty pillows... It's no wonder I've gone off the rails. I think that's enough nostalgia noodle for everybody today. Do I don't want, think. Do I, you have any more? I do can't you don't add anything to, to that. Add. Actually, I'm going to stay away from all of that and wait for the complaints to roll in and say it was all your fault. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. 
for listening to our travel, one of our travel specials. Um, We will be back next week with more travel tips for you. And we've got the brilliant novelist Catherine Heine coming on the show. We have for our book club. Excited about so. Do tune in. Goodbye. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.